The scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Esther, the entire sixth chapter. If you'd like to follow along, it's on page 782 in your pew Bibles. Esther chapter 6. That night, the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this, the king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows he had erected for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisors and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. This is the word of the Lord. The light is green. Okay. <laughs> this is the way I felt a few years ago when Tracy and I went on our first trip and we got married. And we went to New York City. We drove there. And I love cities, especially big cities. And, uh, you know, being from the Toronto area, I grew up on the TTC which is basically one loop 
and a straight line of subway system. And we arrived in New York City, and I was excited to ride the big New York City subway, and I looked at the map. And if you've ever seen the New York City subway system, it looks like a spider web. What is going on here, <laughs> is what I felt. And not wanting to uh, say that I didn't know what was going on, I tried to make things up, and we ended up on the wrong train, going the wrong direction, and ended up in the wrong place. You know, maybe that's the way you felt this week as you read Esther. Or maybe you didn't have a chance to read Esther this week. Um, you're too busy chasing around kids, grandkids, or doing math homework and juggling part-time jobs. Or... And then you're sitting here in the pew thinking that same thing as we read chapter 6. What is going on here? See, the truth is that's actually a pretty normal response when we read through the book of Esther. See, I can also imagine that this question popped into the heads of the characters themselves. We read of Mordecai being honored. What we didn't read was everything leading up to that point. See, Esther, the book, is a story about Jews living in Susa, the capital city of Assyria. And this is a hundred years after the Babylonian exile, after the Jews were taken into exile. These people were still there. They were living in this city, settled there, in a foreign land. This is significant. They're living away from the temple, the place where God's presence dwells, away from the land that the Lord had promised to their ancestors. They were living away from their home people. This would be a little like a group of Canadians living in a place like Zimbabwe. Okay, this is far away from hockey. This is far away from maple dip donuts and double doubles. This is far away from everything Canadian. What's going on here? But not only are they living in a foreign land, but God is silent. There I said it, because that is the, the cat that needs to be let out of the bag. God is not mentioned in this book. This is one of the highlighted features of the book of Esther. This has left some people in history wondering, what is it even doing in our Bible? How can a book that doesn't mention God tell the story of God's people? What's going on here? Now, although we read chapter 6 this morning, looking back on the story leading up to this point, we can see that God's absence in this story is not just something that we hear. It's something that we feel. Starting with Esther the Jew being taken into the palace at the beginning of the book to enter the beauty contest to be the new queen, to impress the king by spending a night with him, to Haman the Agagite and Mordecai the Jew who are caught up in this ancient family feud that goes back to the time of King Saul when he didn't destroy the Agagites like the Lord commanded. And now Haman is seeking to destroy not just Mordecai, but the entire, entire Jewish people living in Assyria. In fact, the first five chapters of this story, we see one thing after another happening to these people. We also see the main characters, Esther and Mordecai themselves, making poor decisions. 
getting caught up in the sinful and grotesque practices of the Assyrian kingdom. We know God is not mentioned in this book, but it appears also that Mordecai and Esther have forgotten about him too. The title for this series is For Such a Time as Ours. Because our experiences are not much different from theirs. Just a couple thousand years difference. Esther is a story for us. Right here. Right now. We don't have to dig too deep to see the mirror that this book is. You know, all the things that are going on around us in the world seem to mirror the book of Esther pretty well. Just like Esther's experience, you know, we find ourselves being caught up in a hashtag Me Too movement that brings the sexual misconduct of, of men to, to women into the public space, into the, the headlines of the newspapers, which also makes us think about ourselves and how we too are responsible for distorting our own sexuality and relationships in different ways. Like Esther and Mordecai, at times we need God to show up in our lives. We need him to be there with us. And sometimes he doesn't appear to be there. Maybe it's an illness or, or a lost job or a struggling relationship. We, we are out of ideas. We need God to show up and do something and we don't get any response from him. And C.S. Lewis shares our experience when mourning the loss of his wife, he wrote this. He said, when you're happy, so happy, you have no sense of needing God, so happy that you're tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption. If you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate. When all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. How is it can, that God can be so quiet when our need is so great? Like Esther and Mordecai, we are also prone to forget God. We often forget about his word. We focus on other things. We're, we're confronted with our sin and brokenness every day. What's going on here in our world for us? See, the book of Esther speaks to us. And as we dig a little bit into this book over the next few weeks, we will see this. And what I want to do this morning is spend a little bit of time trying to unpack what this book is about? How do we read it right? How do we see what's going on? How can we see the book of Esther like an onion where we start to peel back the layers and see how God is at work in this book? The reason why we started at chapter 6 as the first sermon, it might be kind of funny for you to think, well, we're starting a sermon series on Esther and we started, you know, halfway through the book. What, what is that all about? Esther is a book that is written full of a great reversals. The book is all about how everything is reversed. That's the way the book's structured. 
And I put this up on the screen so we can see that Esther is constructed as a, it's called a chiastic structure. It means that, that the first, uh, everything leads up to a certain point. And then the, in the first half of the book. And then the second half of the book is how all of the things that happen in the first half are reversed. The first five chapters of this book feature the hopelessness, the brokenness, the adversity against God's people, culminating in chapter 5. With Esther being accepted by the king as she goes into his presence to plead for her people's, her and her people's lives. After the decree that, that Haman inspired to destroy all the Jews. You know, one of the most famous lines from the book is Esther boldly proclaiming before she goes into the presence of the king, if I perish, I perish. And Esther pleases the king. And so he reaches out his golden scepter to her, and, and meaning that she could bring her request to him. And so Esther invites Haman to a feast the very next day. This point in the story that we get to, when Esther is accepted into the king's presence and is able to bring her request to him and then she invites them to a feast, that point is where all the tension in the book is leading us. We're left after Esther goes away from the king anticipating what is going to happen in this next feast. What, what, is, what is going to happen when Esther comes face to face with Mordecai? This point of the story reminds me of almost every single good TV show where every episode ends in a cliffhanger. For me, that, that show that it reminds me of is the show Lost, where I spent two weeks watching all whatever, nine seasons of Lost. Two weeks. If you do the math, that doesn't leave much time for other things. And that's even before Netflix was a thing, where they have that 15-second auto-reload where it just keeps playing the next and the next and the next. That's what we find ourselves in. This cliffhanger moment where everything is pulling our, our thoughts and our desires towards this feast that Esther is hosting. What's going to happen? And then we get to chapter 6 that Len read for us. And verse 1, which says, That night, so this is the night right after Esther came before the king and before the feast the next day. That night, the king couldn't sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. And it was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bithana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. And then as Len read for us, that the, that the rest of the, the chapter tells the story about how Mordecai is honored. Not Haman. Mordecai. One commentator I read this week talked about chapter 6 and said that chapter 6 contains the first of many great reversals to follow. On the very day Haman goes to the king seeking permission to kill Mordecai. Not only does he not kill Mordecai, but he honors him instead. But now hold on a second. We can just hit a pause on this whole story. 
How did we get to this point? How did Mordecai deserve to be honored? Well, if we look back in chapter 2, and this is years previously, Mordecai uncovered a conspiracy, a conspiracy to assassinate the king. And he brought this conspiracy to Queen Esther. And Esther brought that to the king, and the king's life was spared. And it's just like a little side note in the story earlier on. And it comes up again. Something that happened years ago is the pivot point in this book. And where did it start? How did, how did the king honor Mordecai? Well, we read it. It said the king remembered Mordecai. Well, why did the king remember Mordecai? Because he had the chronicles read to him. Well, why did he have the chronicles read to him? Because the king couldn't sleep. Well, why couldn't the king sleep? We're not told. But we're given a hint. So the way that a story is constructed, especially Hebrew literature, the high point, the pivot point in the story is normally the place of the highest tension, a place with the main characters, the climax of the story. But here, the pivot point, the hinge on which the entire book of Esther swings and that slide that I showed just a second ago, that it's at the middle of the chasm is the king couldn't sleep. The future of God's people, the fate of the Jews living in Susa and in the kingdom isn't found in anything that the main characters do. It's found in the king's sleepless night. Why does this matter? Because it seems almost like it's a random thing. It seems like it's random. See, this takes the focus away from human action. Esther is not the spotlight here. Mordecai is not the spotlight here. Haman is not the spotlight here. The king even is not the spotlight because the, who doesn't want to, to sleep? <laughs> he doesn't do this on purpose. What does this mean? It means that there's another person in this story. How many people here have been part of an acting production or seen an acting production, a play? Put up your hand. Yeah. If you've ever been in a play or seen a play, you know that the actors are not the only people who make it happen. There are people who are dressed normally in black. They are called the stage crew. And their job is very important. <laughs> They're the ones who are responsible for changing the set, making sure that props are in the right place, easily accessible to the actors. One time I was, a, I was in high school and I was a part of a play production and, and there was one scene where I needed to use a baseball. And I forget what I was doing with the baseball, but I, it was very important to the scene. And, and for one of our performances, I, I, was, I, I went out on stage and I went to where the baseball was and it wasn't there. Someone had dropped the ball. <laughs> <laughs> and
And I had to think of how to do that scene without this baseball, which is a very hard thing. If, if you're an actor, one of the hardest things to do is to think on the fly, especially in grade 11. My brain was not as advanced as it is now. <laughs> what chapter 6 tells us is that God is the stage crew. That God, though he is silent, he is not distant. Though he is silent, he is not unimportant in this story. He is working behind every scene, even to the point of something so small as taking sleep away from an Assyrian king. Now, we could look at this and easily say, just a coincidence. It just so happened that the king could not sleep that night. But one, one Old Testament scholar puts it like this. He says, coincidence is just God's way of remaining anonymous. We see here that God does not have to be vocal in our lives to be present. He doesn't even have to be felt to be present. And sometimes we can only recognize him when we look back. Six years ago, I think it was six years ago, I met my wife. And you know how, you know, when you go and, you know, we've been meeting a lot of new people. And one of the common questions that people ask us here is, how did you meet? And so we tell the story. We met on the cross-country team at Redeemer. We were both running cross-country. We met while we were running, started talking, and then, you know, it led to one thing after another. We went on some dates, and then we got engaged, and now we're married. A little more in between, but... But if you think about it, if I think about it, why did I join the cross-country team? I only joined in my fourth year. I liked running, but I don't love running. Who loves running? And so when I think about, why did I join the cross-country team in my fourth year? Well, I joined because I became friends with somebody who was a very dedicated runner and who loved running and convinced me that it was a good idea and that we could hang out and it would be fun and I would get into better shape. But, so, so why did I meet this friend? How did I meet this friend? Well, I um, lived in a house with him. And, and interestingly enough, you know, we had completely different interests. We were in different programs at Redeemer. We had different friend groups. This is fourth year, so our friend groups were pretty established. I wouldn't have met this person had I not lived in the same house as him in my fourth year of university. Well, why did I live in the same house as him? Well, I lived in the same house as this person because one of my other friends approached me and asked if I would live there with him because one of their roommates was a very messy person. And they didn't want to live with him again. <laughs> and so they asked me to come and take his place. And so I did. And then I met this runner, and he convinced me to join the cross-country team, and I joined the cross-country team, and I met Tracy, and Tracy and I got married, and now we have Austin. So a messy roommate is why Tracy and I are married this day. <laughs> so all... Everyone out there know that if your room is messy, God could use that. <laughs> What's the point that I'm trying to make? The point is that God is behind and involved in everything in our world. Even though we can't see it. And sometimes you can only see it when you look back. 
God took sleep away from a king in order to save his people. Years later, God became human, born in a stable, a lowly stable, in the middle of nowhere to save the world. A seemingly insignificant event. Nobody took note of it. It wasn't on the news headlines. Nobody even thought twice about it. But God himself came down. When he was born in the stable, he wrote himself into the story of our world to save us. And eventually, that led Jesus to the cross. A place where Jesus died for us. Abandoned by almost everybody. Mistaken by many others. And when he was on the cross, when he was bearing the weight of the world on his shoulders, our sin weighed heavy upon him. He cried out in a loud voice. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me? Why did he say that when he was on the cross? Why did he yell that out? Because there he was, in that moment, completely forgotten about by God. Completely abandoned by his Father. Jesus is up there because of us crying out to God, and what does he get? A door slammed in his face, bolted and double-bolted, and silence. But see, Jesus endured this complete abandonment spiritually. All his followers, nowhere to be found. He did this. He went through this so that you and I will never be forgotten by God, ever. Because not only did Jesus die, he rose again. And he now sits at the right hand of God in heaven. He is our advocate in heaven, sitting at the side of the Father, remembering us. Always. And we're remembered not because of what we do. No, no, no. We sin. Every week we need to come and confess our sin to God every day, every moment. No. We aren't remembered because of what we do. We are remembered because of what he has done. He carried the weight of the world on his shoulders. He died the death we should have died. And so when God looks at us, he doesn't look at us and see us. He sees Jesus, Jesus' perfection. This gives us so much peace, doesn't it? Knowing that wherever you're at, whatever you've done, Jesus' arms are open wide. And because of him, our future is not one of abandonment. It's not one of isolation. It's filled with hope, filled with community, filled with confidence. Confidence that we can go out into a world where we see brokenness. We experience it. We're scared. It's hard. But God is there. Always. 
You know, some people will say, I need to hear from God before I believe. I need to assign that he's real. I need a sign that he's working in my life in order to know he's there. And sure, sometimes God works that way. We know we feel his presence sometimes. We can sense him leading us and guiding us at times. But what Esther 6 shows us, what the cross shows us, is that even when we don't feel him, even when we don't see him, even when we are tempted to say that there is no God, he remembers us. He's always there. Even the place where we least expect him to work. We can never write him off. So as we continue to work through Esther for the next number of weeks, we will see this time and time again. Great reversals. God never forgetting his people. Thanks be to Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity that we are able to look deeper at Esther. God, we pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear what this book is about. How it calls us to live differently today. How it shows us your great love and grace and mercy for us. God, we pray that you would give us the strength to enter into this world confident that you are at work that our work is not in vain, not because of what we've done, but because of what you have done. And you are redeeming all things through Jesus. Give us eyes to see this. Give us hearts that believe this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.